This is Sarah with Mormon True Crime and History. I want to jump back into Stephen Burroughs' gang. Stephen Burroughs, I do want to warn everyone, he was a sexual predator, so there is going to be some talk about his victims and his crimes. I finished off with the last episode talking about how he had been caught in a gang crackdown in Massachusetts. He was arrested in 1785, and he ends up being sent to jail. And by January of 86, Burroughs is on the move from the jail. He's being taken to a prison off of Boston Harbor called Castle Island. He's not there very long, though, before he tries his first escape attempt. By March 14, 1786, the Pennsylvania packet is talking about how he and Wheeler had been sent to Castle Island. And by May 1st of 1786, there's an article that says, Boston, April 26th, Saturday night last, eight convicts made their escape from Castle Island, among whom is the famous Parson Burroughs and the two pirates. Their first escape attempt had to do with Burroughs slowly digging away at these bricks in the chimney of their cell, and then he would put them back one by one. And then during a really loud rainstorm, they broke through and then attacked a guard, abducted him, went over the bay, and then hid in a barn. Burroughs claims that he got caught because someone was snoring, but the articles don't mention anyone snoring. They just mention that a farmer ended up going into his barn and he ends up finding these criminals there. And then they're rearrested. By July, there are articles saying that Burroughs has tried a second escape attempt. July 26, it says, On Monday last, several of the prisoners confined at the castle, led on by that noted villain Burroughs, made a daring attempt to possess themselves of that fortress. They had secured one of the sentinels and taken possession of the guard room. When the alarm being given, the commanding officer and two or three others rushed in upon and disarmed them. One of the garrison was slightly wounded, as were several of the culprits. Instead of punishing him more, they end up making him a deal. As long as he doesn't try to escape again, they'll give him more freedom. Meanwhile, when he's at Castle Island, he admits in his book that a lot of prominent citizens are coming to meet him. Some are giving him money, and his uncle is coming to see him occasionally. And his uncle Ebenezer Davis, the colonel, wants him to go live back in Massachusetts with him when he gets out. By October 1788, he is writing letters saying that he is with his uncle. He's also admitting in his book that because he didn't have a lot of options, for careers, he's very disgusted and resentful that he has to do manual labor. Joseph Smith also hated doing manual labor. He got his members to drain a malaria-infested swamp, which killed quite a few of them. He got them to build temples, but Joseph doesn't do the work. He makes other people do physical labor. Even as a kid, he's notorious for not wanting to do labor, and Burroughs was no different. Burroughs saw it as far beneath him. By November 1st, Burroughs has a contract to teach a school in Charlton, Massachusetts, where he lives with his uncle. He starts with 15 students. By the end of the month, he has 45. He's rehired for two more months into January of 1789. He says he has 48 students, and he claims that people want him to stay for another year, so he continues to teach. In late February of 1789, he writes his parents saying he has the contract for one more year, and he says that his uncle... Colonel Ebenezer Davis is the one who persuaded him to teach. By December 22nd, 1788, Caleb Bingham is writing Burroughs in a letter that gets published in the book saying, you are sensible, you must creep again before you can go. I wish it were in my power to encourage you with respect to business this way. But he claims that Burroughs will have more success and find better encouragement in the country than in town. By June 1st, 1789, there's already a meeting that ends up happening in Charlton, Massachusetts. And 
and they feel compelled to publish a statement in the paper, and it's talking about their school teacher, Master Burroughs. It says, whatever may be said in the respect to propriety of our engaging Mr. Burroughs to instruct our youth, yet it must be acknowledged that his abilities are equal. We have nothing farther to add, but that ever since he has been with us, which is about nine months, his conduct has been morally good. And that's published June 29th, 1789. I don't believe that. I don't believe if his conduct was morally good, they would feel compelled not only to have a meeting about him being a teacher, but also to state that they think he's good. By September 6th, 1789, he marries his cousin, Sarah Davis, who is the daughter of his uncle, Colonel Ebenezer Davis. She was born in 1770, and they get married in Charlton, Massachusetts. Their son, Edward, ends up being born May 4th, 1790, about eight months after their marriage. Most babies for firstborn come nine months or even later. It's possible this baby was early, but it's also possible knowing his sexual history that she was already pregnant. He says that he had lived with a man named Williams, but he said he was treated there more like a child than a stranger. He didn't like that. He said that he takes a horse in July, so he's clearly on the move, and then he returns by September to marry his cousin. And it seems to me that he, from the beginning, is scheming to get back in the business. Burroughs is like Joseph Smith in regards to the fact that neither of them cares much to mention about their wife. They are so little valued that they really get very, very little mention. In fact, Burroughs speaks more about his victims than he does about his wife. So while he's teaching, he has a neighbor named Israel Waters. He says that he's a pimp of the government. Waters is married to a woman named Dorcas Putney, and one of the claims by Burroughs is that Waters finds Burroughs obnoxious and has a plot to destroy him. But one of Burroughs' victims of sexual assault is Eunice Putney. He says she's an old girl who had not borne the character of Lucretia. He's mocking her, saying that she's not honest and that she's not pure. Daniel Bacon Jr. was his neighbor on the census. They have two daughters. Lucy was born March 22nd, 1778. She was married on January 3rd, 1796. And then they have another daughter. Daniel Bacon Jr. and his wife had sent two of their girls to Burroughs School six months before he was married. So the woman was named Eunice Putney. And then there were the two Bacon girls. He doesn't give the Bacon girls names, but I went through and was able to figure out who it is because he does put at one point a letter he's writing to his wife where he's complaining about the barefaced whore who he puts L-Y and then B-N. That's Lucy Bacon. Burroughs has already been scheming and clearly grooming some of his students. He admits to keeping one of his students, Lucy Bacon, after hours. And after he sexually assaults these two girls, he admits that a number of circumstances happening to throw a certain enjoyment in my view and he claims the temptation was too powerful i fell he later says after raping lucy bacon who had just turned 12 in march of 1790 the final moment was past it could not be recalled after i had returned to the school the object had its full operation upon my mind this was a moment of calmness that's terrifying but he says it gave him the keenest pain he claims that his pure conscience is what made him decide that he should tell her that we can't do this again. I don't think he actually told her that because his actions prove otherwise. Besides the fact she's 12 years old, there's also the fact that he hunts her down on a horse later. He is clearly doing every grooming tactic that a pedophile does towards a child victim. He's just lying through his teeth. And what infuriates me 
is that I sometimes see online people liking Stephen Burroughs and saying things like, well, there were some accusations, but he said he was innocent. Yeah, all pedophiles say that. He says not long after this, the same opportunity offered itself again at the schoolhouse. He claims he tells her no, but that they must keep it a secret. Okay, pedophile. He's 100% a pedophile. This girl, when he met her, the sister was 11 and the other one was 12. These are children at a time when girls didn't go through puberty on average until 16 and a half to 17 and a half in the 18th century they're little children now but they're even more so then joseph smith was also someone who preyed upon the neighbors daughters a lot of the women he later slept with were underage girls 10 11 12 years old when he lived with them or when he lived next door to them or on the same street as them in kirtland ohio and he later groomed them and was sexual with them and took a lot of these girls virginity or he would sleep with them while they were married to other men but he doesn't say their ages in the book he rants against them he calls one of his victims a barefaced whore he says that they've destroyed their reputations and he's ranting about it like he's the victim like every pedophile says and pretends they're the victim he's just trying to silence this girl one of the things that comes up and he talks about in his book is that he claims it's a scheme someone to destroy him try to imagine this as if the doctor who had abused all those gymnasts if he was crying out that everybody accusing him were just plotting to destroy him because that's what burroughs is doing so what happens is it later comes out that he was sexual with his two students who were also his neighbors by late may or early june one of his excuses is the parents don't even know the exact date so you see it's a lie okay what happened with these girls that he was arrested for there's a letter published in his book where they give more details one of them is alone with him in his school when he persuades her so he's grooming her this person writing the letter is trying to defend burroughs which is why burroughs printed it he says that he takes hold of her from behind he says that the child didn't scream he clearly is trying to discredit this little girl's account he states that another time she's on her way home walking from school with other kids burroughs stops them and persuaded her to get up behind him him he offers her a ride home and then states that elsewhere he gets her off the horse and took her from behind and placed her be behind him quite indecently he says another one says that when she's close to her house he picks her up and pulls her on top of him on the horse and then tries to do the sexual act on the ground there's another accusation that he tried this with someone in a barn this might be the female the older female or it could be the child burrows is a victim crybaby boy it doesn't matter that he's guilty. In June, he flees to his father's, abandoning his wife and new child. He admits that he is filled with terror to return. He says it's because the horse he borrowed broke its leg, but I don't think so. I think that he knows that he's raped two little girls, and I think that he is worried that his whole story is starting to fall apart. He ends up getting charged, so he's claiming later that Bacon says an attack happened in June. But I think that it's obvious he's already doing things probably by 89, because there's that article that the town has a meeting in June, and it's published in June, saying that there was a meeting June 1st, 1789. And I don't think that the town would be called together to talk about him being their children's teacher if there were not at least some whispers about his inappropriate behavior and it's interesting that the article is so defiant that we're not going to talk about this anymore why do they feel the need to defend their decision in hiring him as their children's tutor and teacher 
considering how it ruined children's reputations to be rape victims at that time, I think it's very likely seeing his history of always wanting to be a school teacher and his later sexual assault and rape accusations that Burroughs was probably guilty of raping not just those girls, but others too, who just chose not to talk. The Hartford Current on May 2nd 1791, they're publishing an April 28th article from Worcester, and it says that at the Supreme Judicial Court last week, the noted Stephen Burroughs, lately employed as a schoolmaster, was brought to the bar on four indictments, two for attempting rapes on his pupils and two for the most wanton conduct. He was convicted on three and sentenced to the court to sit for one hour on the pillory, and he's sentenced three months. He's to be whipped 90 times, but later that gets bumped up to like 117 or something like that, and he has to pay the cost, and he has to give security for a bond for good behavior for three years. The article mentions the objects of his brutal attempts were sisters. One was in the 13th year and the other in the 14th year of her age. He rants about Putney, and his excuse at trial is that the charge he is charged with, it was done in private. In this period where he's obviously trying to make himself look good, he's printing letters in the book that are written between him and his wife. One of the things he's bitter about his wife is that she hasn't come to see him. He tells her that she's not a good wife and that she owes him. It's her duty to obey him. He rants against his victims. He says that they're obviously liars because one of the girls didn't talk and admit this to her parents for like six months. First off, when I read that she had talked within six months, I was actually impressed because I didn't talk for like 20 years. <laughs> so six months, I was like, that's a brave girl. She's brave. She's already talking about that. Rape at the time was a crime that would destroy not the reputation of the rapist, but the reputation of the victim. And so a lot of these crimes don't get prosecuted. Girls who were rape victims were no longer allowed to spend time with their friends. Their friends' parents saw them as, you know, soiled doves. And a lot of them go into prostitution. Fortunately, these girls did not. But a lot of them, they're not treated like victims. They're treated like they are the ones who brought this on themselves. So that means to me that the Bacons not only knew he had done this, but they knew a lot more about what he had done than what he admits. He tries saying that the victim is a barefaced whore and a liar and that she doesn't want her reputation to be ruined, and so that's why the girls aren't telling the truth in court. They're saying that he attempted to rape them, but he's admitting that he raped them. So it's incredible when you realize he's calling his little victim a barefaced whore. He is the typical pedophile. They are complete monsters and terrifying people, but the moment they get caught, they're the victim. They are the victim, and they cry a freaking river about everything. It's like the monster suddenly turns into this baby little boy. It's incredible. And he does that. So he's slandering her, saying when the girl was examined, she would not stand the test. He admits in the book he did it, but he's saying that she is a liar. He's like a sobbing little bitch to his wife in these letters. He's crying about the horrors of jail and how he's cruelly arrested. He begs her to come see his place of torment. Shouldn't be surprising coming from a man who admitted he saw a slave impaled and then later called his prison sentence a bitter cup of slavery. He claims he's been abandoned by his friends. One of the things he's saying is, obviously, she wasn't that upset about it because she didn't talk for six months. He says that she also continued to be around me, so obviously it's her fault. Um, She's his student. She doesn't 
have the right to be like, I don't want to be around this person until she tells someone. He calls the evidence ridiculous. He says that it's all a scheme. And he's mocking his victim, saying, By supporting the charge of violence against the virtuous, the modest, and the amicable Lucy Bacon. But he does the L-Y-B-N. Who, from her own story, did we not disbelieve her word make herself one of the most barefaced whores who disgrace her sex and bring a blush upon the cheek of every modest woman. His wife is like telling him to take his sentence like a man and she's saying, do not run away, just do this. She asks him if his love is sincere towards her, you won't abandon me and the child, you will not run away. And Burroughs turns around and is always manipulating her that you owe me. He also is kind of mocking her like, it's silly that you think I'm going to abandon you. I would never do that. He's saying, should I leave you, my Sally, the idol of my soul, the delight of my eyes? He says he'd prefer death before abandoning her. And she writes him and says, I've heard that you've made attempts to break jail. This is in December 28th, 1790. He denies that's true. But like the typical woman who protects a pedophile, she writes, Daddy Burroughs in February 1791, saying that Israel Waters, the sheriff and others, seized him cruelly at 3 a.m. She says the charges were truly of a heinous nature, but the evidences brought forward in support of these charges were too ridiculous to mention. She's denying that they're true. She wants help. Okay, Anna Duggar, the judge, didn't just find him guilty. He clearly had him whipped a lot because of what he had done. Stephen Burroughs' excuse, I'm not guilty with Putney from open lewdness because I did it in private. Mm, okay. Like, he's just such a schemer. Burroughs claims in his book that a thousand men save him at midnight and that they all break him out. But the papers claim something different. Stephen Burroughs, he claims later that what brings him down after he escapes jail, because obviously he's not going to actually do what he told his wife he's going to do, that I'd rather die than flee and abandon you and the baby. He is claiming that what brings him down are articles he's writing under a pseudonym. He's calling himself the philanthropist. Yet when I went through the paper trying to find all these articles, the first one that's printed is May 10th. So he's already connected to people in Long Island because he's writing articles for a Long Island paper. There is an absence June 14th where there's a sudden break in these articles. And on June 2nd, there's an article printed from Worcester, and it says Saturday night last, Stephen Burroughs, Stephen Cook, Stephen Cook Jr., and Simeon Weatherby affected their escape by sawing a passage for themselves through the grates. Stephen Burroughs has seven weeks left of his imprisonment when he flees. Burroughs makes it sound like he just ended up connected to people in Long Island, but that's obviously not true. He already had these connections established. He admits in his book that when he fled, he was determined to leave no trace behind. He says he heads to Rhode Island, but he gets confused and he ends up right in the same place. And then he says he's caught and accused of being involved with security certificate counterfeiting fraud, a gang involving George Irish. He says he denies it, but he's terrified of being taken to Providence because he's afraid he'll be recognized. By February of 1791, the articles are printing about a gang of well-dressed gentlemen in New York City who are selling United States certificates that are fraudulent and they're completely bankrupting people. They're saying in the articles that group is so well-structured or well-connected that they're just hard to catch. Mm. I think what it is is this is a very elitist period. People like Burroughs, instead of being branded as a child for stealing a horse and already being involved in crime, they are just let go to do whatever they want. So the fact these are well-dressed rich people, they're just being ignored. Later, Burroughs admits that he goes to... New York City when he flees Long Island and he goes to a gentleman named Huntington where he's sent to go to get money. 
before he flees to Georgia. I think that Burroughs is very deep in the gang world and it's so well connected throughout the states that this is what's going on. He also mentions later going to judges and members of Congress for money. You wouldn't do that if you were just an average criminal. He also mentions later that a judge on Long Island suddenly goes broke and that's probably because they were involved in fraud. He's clearly lying about thousand men saving him. Someone obviously gave them a saw to cut through. While Burroughs was being arrested the first time going to Castle Island, and he wrote about it in his book, that while he's in one of these taverns or stopping places, that there's a woman warning her daughters that Burroughs undertook to preach to people that it was lawful for him to lie with all women in town. And he carried his point so far as to lie with every man's wife, then ran away and left them. The Smiths were sleeping with people's wives and daughters too. And this is a book that Joseph Jr. loved. So after he escapes, he admits that someone who knew him and recognized him stops him and accuses him of having abandoned a young wife. And he's like, I don't have a young wife. And the man is like, how do you wish to conceal the matter from me? I'm accustomed with the circumstances of your marrying blank, of you carrying her far away and endeavoring to hide it from me, he says, is just pointless. Burroughs says that this is a false accusation. And he says that the person brought the parents of the victim who said this is not the Stephen Burroughs who stole her. Maybe that's true. But I think it's interesting that Burroughs doesn't put her name, not even letters, but he is willing to slander his victim by putting at least the letters of her name. We know that he went under the alias Apollos Davis, and there is one Apollos Davis who died October 3rd, 1831 in Cherry Ridge, Pennsylvania. He has no parents listed. It says on his grave that he's about 46 years old, which would make him born around 1784 or 85. If his age was correct and he was 46, then that would make him born in 1785. If he was a little bit older, he could have been born in 84 when he was going under this alias because he wasn't arrested until 1785 and he'd gone on under this alias for a while. But he might not be 46 years old. It says about 46 years old. So it's very possible that somebody had a child that they named after his alias. Counterfeiters were notorious for bigamy defrauding girls out of their fortunes. They were notorious for being sexually promiscuous. This is not unreasonable that Burroughs, seeing as how much he abandons his wife, that he is sleeping with other people. I have a hard time believing that someone who can call a child victim a bare-faced whore and a disgrace to her sex, but he conspicuously leaves the name of the female blank that he supposedly was accused of sleeping with or running away with. It might be that he actually did try and run away. He might not have married her counterfeiters they were notorious for using disguises even fake mustaches wigs like incredible disguises so it's very possible that maybe the parents didn't recognize him maybe it's true maybe he's actually telling the truth it's hard to know because he lies so much but it would follow the scheme because it's a respectable family she has money and these people like samuel ford the gang member ford they would marry bigamously, steal these fortunes, and then drop them, abandon them. He says this wasn't him. He says there's another Burroughs in jail for horse theft in Connecticut at this time, and that's the one who did it. So maybe he's telling the truth. He says that he goes to Rhode Island and stays with one Owen. This might be the Captain Owen that he first went to as a boy when he went to the tavern owner and with a letter after he was expelled from school. And then he's almost arrested. They want to take him back to jail because this George Irish gang, they think he's a part of it. He says that he's caught, but he ends up paying them to let him go because he's scared he's going to 
get recognized and charged there. When he's writing these articles, these articles stop by the fall when he's getting a teaching position. I went through the articles, just kept going through. And although he stops printing under that alias, I think he might still be writing articles. For example, there's one that's printed August 9th. 1791 by a so-called student. It's sort of encouraging Bacchus life and drunkenness. There's one that's written that's ranting against Christianity. It says, you know, that they're superstitious and it compares it to Muslims. This would be encouraging this gang constitution to destroy Christian religion. By June 21st, there are complaints which the editor prints because there were articles blaming females for their own problems, saying that their bodice is too short and even though they're beautiful, that men can't be expected to resist such temptations. Well, this person responds by saying that the person who said that is just basically an animal. And so it seems like people connected to this paper at least have the same ideas of Burroughs. September 13th, there's an article called Advice to Ladies. It's blaming them for their situation. Then there is an article from the philanthropist that says, I don't think myself answerable to any criticisms from these articles that he's printed. People had already been complaining by like the 28th. People are saying the philanthropist flatters himself. So the September 13th article also is the one that mentions something the Smiths later claim, that the moon is inhabited. By April 6th, you have ads from William Cooper. It's interesting that the Coopers are mentioned with the nobles because the Coopers were tied to Sam Ford's gang. I think it's Benjamin Cooper who helped Samuel Ford rob the official colony uh, banking note plates. So instead of using counterfeit plates, they were like, why don't we just break in and steal the originals? So Cooper's name showing up in a place where Stephen Burroughs clearly has connections. That's not warm and cozy. On November 29th, the paper is mentioning someone by the name of Cook, Elias Cook, who's living near Bridgehampton. And Henry Cook is mentioned too. So Bridgehampton is where he later teaches school. It's not far from where he currently was teaching school at that time. Then there's an article in February of the next year about women good wives. She must never speak in the positive, but always in the submissive tone. She must hold her tongue. She cannot be allowed to go somewhere where her husband has not consented her to go. She should be modest, always cheerful, and she shouldn't be selfish, greedy, and be indulging in things she can't afford. That's what makes a good wife. It's also interesting that on March 1st, it's the 41st edition printed paper because this paper was new, Washington randomly goes up and visits Captain James Haven at Sag Harbor. Burroughs was living with Dr. Havens and another man named Haven. It's not Captain Haven, but once again, we've got Washington, who's currently president, just stopping by. Washington has quite a few connections to counterfeiters. He stayed in the home of one of Samuel Ford, the gang leader's relatives, during the Winter Valley Forge. He is connected to Stephen Burroughs through his dad, Eden Burroughs, and, you know, this random stop in the same place that Burroughs is in. He was a part of the Virginia House protecting the Alstons. He also stayed in the house during the Winter Valley Forge of Burr Isaiah Potts' father. Isaiah Potts later formed a triangle of crime with 
James N. Ford and the Sturdivants on the Ohio River. And while Washington was president, Knox, his secretary of war, wrote a statement talking about all of the murders that had been happening. And he mentions thousands of people have died within a seven-year period on this stretch of the Ohio River. They're blaming it on indigenous people. But it's interesting that Knox notes a very strange thing is going on because the area where the crimes are committed isn't anywhere that any indigenous community is currently claiming as theirs. So their theory then is that indigenous communities have to somehow secretly travel through a lot of murderous white settler towns undetected, go up to the south of the Ohio River, stretch of a thousand miles where all these murders are happening, and then commit them and take stolen loot without being detected all the way back to their own communities. There were only like 12 million people in the United States at that time. And they're admitting that what is equivalent to over a million dollars has been stolen in gang territory, which is south of the Ohio River, along this stretch until it connects to the Mississippi. And they don't do anything about it. They don't investigate it. They don't send soldiers down to protect American citizens. They do nothing. And that, at best, it shows that Washington did not actually give a shit about American people. But at worst, why? Why would you go out of your way to not protect American citizens? They sent 15,000 troops that Washington led to put down a rebellion about poor farmers in Pennsylvania not wanting to pay a whiskey tax. So they can do that, but they can't put down murderous crime in an area that they know and admit where it is. That's a little weird. By March 22nd, Someone is printing something claiming to be a teacher, and he writes an address to the parents of his pupils. It sounds a little bit like Burroughs. I think it could be Burroughs. He is lecturing parents that it's a mistake that the principal part of a child's education depends upon the teacher, and he's claiming the principal part will depend upon home. So basically, this teacher is claiming that if the children are learning to be knaves and rogues, They probably learned it from home. If they're learning to be violent, they probably learned it from home, which maybe that's true. But he's saying that, you know, abuse and tyranny, they learn at home, not at school. And the parents must fully trust their teachers. And whoever wrote it thinks that a difference in opinion may retard the progress of instruction and create an evil. So it's said that this article was printed in Boston, December 30th, 1791. It may have been, but I think it's interesting because at this point, Burroughs has been a teacher and he's already got people who trust their kids to him fully. By April 19th, someone is mentioned as selling books at the schoolhouse and at Captain Stephen Howells, and that's Aza Partridge. Smith later ended up seducing Partridge girls. They were teenagers. He slept with both of them while they were living in his home. So what do we know? We know that he gets to Rhode Island by July after escaping. Then he goes to Shelter Island on Long Island and he meets up with Dr. Havens. He claims that he didn't know them, but it seems like he obviously did. He says that while he's there, the Uncle Jim, he calls him Uncle Jim, asked him to write these articles under his alias, Philanthropist. But obviously that's not true because he's already been printing them. And then he ends up teaching later a little bit farther away. He gets a contract for Bridgehampton on Long Island. Shelter Island is only 11 miles away from Bridgehampton and Sag Harbor, where Washington went to visit, 
the Havens, that is in the middle of the two. So if you live in Utah and you live in Salt Lake County like I do, then that distance is like from Daybreak in South Jordan to Sandy, Utah. That's 11 miles. Both the Judge Havens and the Dr. Havens entrust their children's educations to him. And one of them has daughters, and he fully entrusts them to him. So the counterfeiting hotspot in New London is only 14 miles away from where he is. And the Havens are living on Shelter Island, and Judge Havens has an inn. He has 30 students, um, and he mentions that a lot of these are girls. So here he's going under the alias of Edenson. He's claiming that he's from London, that he knows a lord and is friends with a lord. He's forging letters. He definitely forged one pretending to write the lord as if the long lost friend I haven't talked to you in a while. Let's chat to get people to believe because people start realizing his scheme. Before this, Burroughs admits that he's so selfish that while he is on his way there to Long Island, he finds someone who's really sick and he schemes to pretend to be a doctor to charge him money so he can get money. And if you think about that, that potentially could have led to someone's death if that man didn't get better. So Burroughs has no conscience about what he's doing and who he schemes. Judge Havens is the one who entrusts two of his daughters under his care. Judge Havens is said to be a secluded scientist. He says that he lives with the judge for a while. He says this is when he begins writing the articles, which I already talked about isn't true. And then he gets the position at Bridgehampton. He claims that the next year he wants to go see his wife, but there's too many things going on that keep him from actually seeing her. He's always the victim. I got sick. I couldn't do it. I couldn't go see her. But there's also going on in this time period a firm in Boston called Jones and Burroughs. And the advertisements are there only for a few months before they disappear. That advertises to sell stocks of the United States on commission, it says, by private contract and public auction. It says those gentlemen who may be pleased to have them, it says that they may rely on fidelity, secrecy, and dispatch. It's appearing for a few months in 1792, starting in March, and then there's just silence. On January 13th, 1792, there's a vague mention of Stephen Burroughs in a paper. And it says that Burroughs is at Castle William, and he's riding a wooden horse, and a chaplain comes down and says, what are you doing on there? And he answers, I'm winning the Christian race, steadfast and immovable. I don't really understand this because Castle Williams wasn't built until 1807. So I don't really understand if there was maybe a jail called Castle Williams. I don't really know why they're calling it Castle Williams. Maybe someone who does know can kind of reach out and let me know what that's about because I don't get it. So let's talk about the gangs of this area where he goes. So why Long Island? Well, all criminal places that have gangs, when their gang leader falls and the gang starts falling apart, others move into that territory. So what do we know about Long Island? We know that Joseph Bill, a counterfeiting member who bounced all over, he operated on Long Island in the 1740s and 50s. Joseph Bill was finally arrested in 1773 and he was executed, which made room for a new gang to come in. He was connected to Owen Sullivan, who was connected to Robert Rogers and Lucy Mack Smith's father. Was not only one of the original rangers who Rogers hired, but he also admitted in his book that he used to bail out counterfeiters. There's also a mention after Stephen Burroughs' book is published in a paper. The writer of that article is complaining about how all of these gang members, these rogues, they are all doing the same scheme. And he basically says Stephen Burroughs is the only one 
smart enough to get an editor for his book, but all of them are printing their life histories and their autobiographies, which is something that Lucy Max Smith's father did. And he also stated an interesting thing when he said that he never taught his children to be religious. He taught them to lie, scheme, to be deceitful, cheat. And then he also said that he had a religious conversion when he was an old man like in his 70s or something, a bright light, bright as noonday, appeared into his room, and that's what converted him to Christianity. Well, Joseph Smith claimed the same thing. John Davis and Peter Long ended up getting arrested in a crackdown. The Longs end up being prominent counterfeiters later on. They had a silversmith and engraver who was on Long Island. His name was Henry Dawkins, and he was with a man named Israel Young. Israel Young had been involved with Isaac Ketchum, and this was during the American Revolution. They were arrested in May of 1776 at Long Island. They were not British supporters, but they were just like, well, if everyone else is counterfeiting. So they were counterfeiting dollars. Before that, there was a massive gang that was connected near Long Island in Little Rest, Rhode Island, and Kingston, Rhode Island. Kingston already had previously a gang connected to one person named Potter. Silver Sam Casey was Samuel Casey. He was a smith, a silversmith, goldsmith, and he had been near Pelham, Massachusetts, where Stephen Burroughs later was counterfeiting with Lysander when he was first arrested. In 1752, the Casey's, Silver Sam, and Gideon were in Rhode Island. Gideon gets arrested in Philadelphia. He's convicted, but he's released. He had business with his brother Samuel, and by May of 1763, he sells his interest and moves to Warwick. And he ends up getting involved with the Dover Money Club. The Casey's are involved. Um, Wheeler, who was arrested with Burroughs, he's involved with these people. He connects with men like engraver Abel Buell of Connecticut, who Congress knew was a convict, who they hired for some reason. In 1784, Buell ended up making the first map of the United States. Wheeler, who was arrested with Burroughs, he has a gang in Cohas, New Hampshire at this time, and he's selling tools to other gangs throughout the 50s all the way to the 1770s and beyond. He's selling things like inks, dyes, stamps, things that they need. So he sold to the Casey's. In 1768, there's a crackdown of the Casey's and 15 are arrested in Killingly, Connecticut, near the Rhode Island border. Gideon Casey flees with two of his sons and Daniel Wilcox into a boat, a ship, and they go to Fairfield, Connecticut. They end up staying on this boat before they leave. They get caught. They're going down to North Carolina. When Gideon Casey is caught on this ship, they end up being caught with everything. The plates, the molds, the stamps, bills, everything. And he does a big no-no in the gang world. He ends up admitting this. Even though he admitted it, he ends up getting let off. But then he seems to disappear. So the Rhode Island government and other governments were completely aware that Samuel Casey was counterfeiting. As early as 1786, they know where he is and they don't do anything about it. In September of 1764, he had already had his forge and his home completely destroyed. And they said that he had lost over 2,000 pounds sterling property. That's a lot of money back then. He used to brag that he had aided prominent men like Samuel Stewart and Benjamin Barber, who was from Hopkinton, to get their entire estates and had never been caught. So he's obviously bragging about how great of a counterfeiter he is and how he's helped these rich people. So when his house burns down, Silver Sam, he moves to Little Rest, Rhode Island, and he's still able to buy a really nice house called the Helm House. He pretends to be a legitimate trader, but he's really a gang leader. He also had been caught with a oath 
that he made people swear. If I am not true to you and do not keep all your counsel and your secrets, I pray God to shut me out of heaven and to make all my prayers to become sin. These people would kill people if they broke their oaths. There is a couple crackdowns, it seems like, but they always seem to get away with it. This is a multi-generational thing like all counterfeiting families. you got some Wilsons, you've got not just Gideon Casey Sr. and Samuel Casey Sr., but Gideon Casey Jr., Samuel Casey Jr. You've got quite a few people from Hopkinton, which is a major place where later on these securities end up being forged. So by 1770, there's a raid, and Casey gets tipped off that there's a raid coming. And he ends up writing strange letters saying, like, all the boys are gone to meeting, and you have to come right now, and if you don't, you will be directly sorry, but you have a friend right now, so help me. And he signs it with some symbols. So there are quite a few people arrested. Five of them are Samuel Casey, Elijah, and William Reynolds, Thomas Clark, and Samuel Wilson. They're indicted in October of 1770. When he's tried, the jury comes back and says, no, he's not guilty. And the court is like, yeah, that is so contrary to the evidence that you need to go back and do this again. So the second time, the jury comes out and they're like, well, he's guilty, but only if we consider his confession as lawful evidence. And the court is like, yeah, that's lawful evidence. So he ends up being found guilty and the attorneys for the defense they do the gang thing they want this declared a mistrial they want it to set aside they're scheming to do everything to free casey and then the same day the motion of the defense is retracted and silver sam gets sentenced to hang but it gives the exact time he should hang but there's not a day entered into the records for his hanging so meanwhile casey is sending petitions to the general assembly trying to get out of the death penalty. And his petition is referred to be looked at over the next session. But on November 3rd, gang members with their faces blackened with wet gunpowder, they form a riot in Kings County and they break open the jail. They have iron bars, they have weapons, they are smashing the locks, and they free all of the counterfeiters except one of the Wilsons, who can't flee because he's ill. Quite a few of these people who get tried for the riot come from Hopkinton. Silver Sam is last seen getting on a horse with some of these gang members and riding off into the woods, but he is never seen again. In September of 1779, his wife Martha is able to successfully petition the General Assembly of Rhode Island to give him a full pardon, hoping that he'll come home, but he never comes home. There is mention in this book, Counterfeiting in Colonial America by Kenneth Scott, that a Canadian descendant said that Sam had been a loyalist and fell fighting for the king during the revolution. I don't think that's true for a few reasons. These people are complete tyrants. They have complete power. The idea he's going to enlist as a private and be under the control of the government, to me, doesn't sound likely. Gangs rail against the government. They hate the government. And it's also because a lot of these histories for gang families they are so secretive it's hard to even find their families' names like the children in their family tree sometimes even though they all know how to write they keep this wall of silence and they often will come up with excuses so i don't believe that joseph smith also had men show up while he was in carthage jail with faces blackened by wet gunpowder who attacked and killed him while he was in jail and one thing that I noticed that was really odd in the 1838 trial, there were Mormons testifying against Joseph Smith for his insurrection against the state of Missouri. John Coral 
was a Danite Mormon who testified in the 1838 trial against Joseph Smith and other Danites, including my ancestor. But he said a really weird statement. He was talking about a Danite meeting, and he said, Towards the close, he observed, meaning Joseph Smith, that they must obey the presidency, which was Joseph and two others, and if the presidency led them astray, they might destroy them. That is a very weird thing to say. Because that is something that gangs did. If gang leaders violated their gang constitution, and yes, the Danites did have a constitution that they wrote, then they had the right to murder their gang leader. Gideon Casey, he broke the constitution. He turned King's evidence. He disappeared. His brother Samuel broke the constitution. He gave information turning evidence. He was last seen riding away in a forest after men with blackened faces broke him out. James N. Ford... He was later murdered by his own gang members. That is a very weird thing to say for a prophet. The church tells people that it was an anti-Mormon mob and blah, blah, blah. But a lot of the people in the group actually knew Joseph. More than one of them said Joseph had taken the virginity of their sisters. And weirder than that was when I was going through an All Red account. And he was a Mormon loyal to the church and through his little autobiography there's this one little blip where he says that he was there the night that joseph died and that he saw him fall out of the window of carthage jail after he was shot and i remember being like well either you're full of shit or you were part of the mob but another weird thing about joseph smith and I could do a whole episode about the similarities between Danites because it is the Blackleg gang of the Mormon church. But in the history of the church, which was written by Joseph, in the third volume, I noticed during this insurrection that they do against the state of Missouri that when Smith is writing his narrative and denial in the book, he refers to Lyman White, who was the one who led the attack on Millport, where they took Mormon Danites, and those Mormons kicked Christians out of their homes at gunpoint at midnight, plundered their homes, and then burnt them down to the ground. He refers to him repeatedly as Colonel, and he does this throughout the book, until he's reprinting documents that were written to non-Mormons, denying the accusation that they have committed any crimes or are violent, then he never calls him a colonel. Then he just calls him Lyman White. For example, he has to give an affidavit denying that he threatened to kill a justice of peace named Black. He had surrounded Black's house with armed Danites, and he had said, you're going to sign this saying that we're innocent or we're going to kill you. Black signed it, but then he fled, and he signed his own statement saying that they had done this. So Joseph Smith wrote a denial of this, and throughout this denial... In his affidavit, his legal statement about what happened, he refers to Colonel White as Lyman White. He never fixes any military title to him. But during the attacks in October 1838, when he's continuing his narrative in the book, he is referring to him as Colonel. It's kind of interesting. Okay, let's kind of jump back into what's going on in the gang world. Around this time, this is when the Pennsylvania County gang is really taking off. And so is the Morristown, New Jersey, Samuel Ford gang. So we already have a void in the Long Island gang's Okay, let's kind of jump back into what's going on in the gang world around this time. 
when he breaks out of jail. In 1790, we have the arrest of Caleb Church in the spring. He is one of the gentlemen, so-called, who is charged with defrauding and forging U.S. certificates, and he's taken not for that, but for burglary. He hires an attorney and he writes Colonel George Irish, the same person who Burroughs, as he's trying to get to Long Island, was accused of being a part of this gang. Judge Potter ends up releasing him after George Irish writes him requesting that Church be given bail, even though his bail had already been previously denied. By March, the papers are printing people demanding that the judge be investigated. By April, someone is talking about this sketchy bail deal it says a room in the goal was the scene of the dark transaction and the grog the inspiring liquor then it says that the bowl circulated and phineas and co after exhausting it and all their law knowledge in repeated efforts to fabricate a proper bail bond but to no purpose sent for an expert hand who soon completed the business and the prisoner was liberated the judge responds to what he's done and it's interesting that he uses the exact excuse that gangs always use. He says, Caleb, he was in very poor state of health and destitute of those comforts that were absolutely necessary in his declining state. But by April 15th, the paper Newport Herald is saying that Caleb Church is one of three men who've been charged with robbing one James Rogers in his home at gunpoint in November of 1787 with one Abel Weathers who already had been caught and named Caleb as an accomplice. And the person in the paper says that Caleb already admitted to his role in the robbery. He's never tried for the crime, but people are demanding now that this judge be looked into. Caleb Church is tried a year later, in April 1791, and he's found guilty of forgery and horse theft, but not burglary. Stanton Campbell and Caleb Church were convicted for counterfeiting a state treasury order and using that to get final settlement certificates of properties of one person in particular, Cato Vernon. They were sentenced to have their ears cropped, be branded, and Caleb then was further convicted of horse theft. He's supposed to forfeit his property, and he's going to be banished by the state. While Campbell... Had his sentence carried out quickly, Church's is delayed for over a month. Then Church is being charged with federal charges for forging the U.S. securities. The Rhode Island Assembly orders his sentence of the counterfeiting conviction suspended. And even though the federal charges are not about state certificates but federal ones, they seem to think that the government should take over. They still want his property seized, and so that's done. He's indicted with Stephen Pettis, and they're tried in June of 1791, but they're acquitted and released. And by 1800, Caleb Church is back living with his family in Hopkinton. So Caleb Church, Stephen Pettis, and Stanton Campbell, they are part of this ring of crime that have been cracked down on, and Colonel George Irish, he also gets arrested, even though he tried publishing grand jury dispositions to clear his own name. The grand jury investigation apparently was split, but seeing as he is a colonel, if he is not a real colonel, I would say he's definitely a grandmaster, and I would say that's probably why he received a letter from church, turned around, and told the judge to do something that he'd already been denied, which was given bail. But we still have some serious gang activity going on. On May 19th in New London, Connecticut of 1791, we've got James Benham, who steals a horse for Daniel Kellogg. The Kellogg name shows up in Vermont gang history. It's also a name Lucy Max Smith mentions when she needs money. She goes to Kellogg, hoping he'll give her money. James Benham is arrested with John Johnson and William Jacqueline. Jacqueline 
they say in the paper, was a pretended money digger who for over two years has been conning people in Lyme and Colchester, the paper says, out of considerable property. This is likely the same John Johnson who gets snagged later on with Ephraim Wood in 1797 and then later again in the gang in 1806 and 1807's crackdown because the Wood family was also pretending to be money diggers and... They were doing a religious cover and defrauding people, and they were counterfeiting. We've got people in Massachusetts getting arrested for counterfeiting securities. We've got people in North Carolina, William Williams, who's 19. He is a forger who breaks out. 1790 is the year that my ancestor's son-in-law, his uncle, gets arrested with Benjamin Woodward in North Carolina. For counterfeiting, Philadelphia at this time is being flooded with Spanish counterfeit dollars to a point where by July... The papers are talking about it. Um, We have in Providence, David Comstock murdering Ephraim Bacon. I don't know if this is a Bacon related to Burroughs victims or not, but that happens January 1st, 1791. He's killed with an axe. By October 22nd, in the Hudson area, we have a sheriff, Cornelius Hodgeboom, who is murdered. He had just returned from David Arnold's house, who's losing property, and Jonathan Arnold shot him. It says, A number of persons dressed in blankets in a deep disguise and armed with guns came out of the barn and began to fire on the said sheriff and his companions who were riding away. So 15 men disguised chase him over half a mile. One of these is said to be Isaac Hatch. One branch of Hatch's do become prominent Mormons, and there is a whole trail of murder that happens to them and that they do to others. I'll talk about that in other episodes, but the Hatch family does not have a good history. At least the Mormon ones don't. By July 9th, we've got the 84-year-old Samuel Cook, who may be the associate of Burroughs who broke out of jail. He is hanged in New York for his forgery sentence from November 1790. Then we have in Massachusetts, decapitated heads being found in the Mohawk River. Capitation was a gang punishment. Mohawk River was a notorious hotspot area for gangs. There was a judge who presided over Joseph Smith Jr.'s 1830 trial, where he was a pretended treasure digger, and he wrote a letter to a historian. He said, Joseph Smith Sr. lived in Vermont, connected with a bunch of counterfeiters, ran, came to Mohawk River, eloped, in parentheses, seduced a married woman, in parentheses, to Canada, then came to Pennsylvania State. I firmly believe proof affidavits may be had to identify like father, like son. There's a lot of evidence that people who pretended to be treasure diggers because it was illegal, they and people who start radical religious groups, they use these things as covers for counterfeiting. So by August 1st, we've got forgers in Hartford Prison who are escaping with someone named James Smith, who's about 24 years old light complexion, good looking. In Vermont, we've got a murder. A captain is murdering someone by the name of Wells. In New York, we've got a convicted forger and perjurer, John Williams, who, for whatever reason, the government decides to make a Washington County judge by August 1792, which isn't too surprising because I already talked about Abel Buell, who the United States Congress hired, even though he was a forger. But Hawkins, who I mentioned, he was not just forgiven by Congress for his counterfeiting, but by 1778, he's back in their favor, and he makes the first engraving of the New York State coat arms. And the Continental Congress rewards him not only by avoiding the death penalty he's going to face, but also by employing him. And then we have June 1790, we've got the Cooks and Burroughs escaping through bars. You would think that the jailer would have learned his lesson, but by July 19th, he's posting that four men 
Caldwell, Nightingale, McDole, and Ed Burns all dug through floor and managed to escape as well. So 1792, we've got January 13th, the vague reference about Burroughs, a hardened criminal sentenced to Castle William riding the wooden horse. We have March 1st, George Washington, he's visiting the neighbor who's a Havens at Sag Harbor. Dr. Havens is befriending Burroughs and placing four children under Burroughs' care for the next two years. By March, we've got the advertisement of Jones and Burroughs, the stockbrokers of Boston. By April 1792, Stephen Burroughs owing money in Vermont for taxes. The names that show up are other counterfeiting names. We've got the Woodwards, Clarks, Davises, Lewises, and others. Burroughs admits in his book by spring 92, his neglected family is now living in comfort. His finances have greatly improved. He says he's teaching and he's also directing a comedy in the neighborhood. It's called A Bold Stroke for a Wife. Burroughs clearly is so arrogant he cannot really read his audience. That's like if a man came and started doing a play with Mormons and it's clearly a so-called comedy about a hand job. People are not going to find that funny. This is something that infuriates religious people in the area. By April 19th, we've got Asa Partridge, who has been selling books. And Burroughs admits that one of the things that gets him in trouble is he says he wanted a library for kids, his students, to have books that aren't normally recommended by teachers to read. By summer of 92, Burroughs says that he wishes he could go see his wife, but circumstances won't allow it. That's the same summer that he claims that he is going to start this library, but he admits that prominent men want him to take money, and he says, go down to this counterfeiting hotspot in New York City to buy books. But this is also the time when the judge Holbert ends up losing a lot of his money. So it's likely that this library may have been a cover. They definitely were involved in counterfeiting. I don't think that is something that he's not involved in. Burroughs is currently also scheming to flip his enemies to his side. He uses every scheme possible to manipulate people into doing whatever he wants them to do. So he's still going under the name of Stephen Edinson. So during the summer break, he decides to go down to New London, and he says that he immediately sets out for the house of General Huntington, taking a letter that he had for him from Long Island. He notices that people are staring at him. Someone says, by God, it's Burroughs. And he tries to convince them, nope, not me. Don't know what you're talking about. He admits that he finds two of his college classmates, practicing attorneys of the Supreme Court in New London, who stop him and say he's Burroughs. He says they're mistaken, but one of them says, no, I know it's him. And there's another man by the name of Hyde, Justice of Peace of Norwich, who he overhears and he calls for people to help and they take him to the Attorney General named Mr. Coit. He's with someone from Long Island who's seeing all of this and he's realizing that Stephen Eddington is actually Stephen Burroughs. So he's taken before the Attorney General. He has people who are going off about how he's committed rapes, how he stole horses, how he's a counterfeiter, how he's a runaway prisoner. At this point, he's outed. So when he says later on that he brings his wife and children to Long Island at this point shortly after because he misses them, I don't believe that at all. I think what's happened is he's already been outed. This person from Long Island is likely to talk and... This is why he ends up having Daddy Burroughs come to the rescue along with Colonel Ebenezer Davis and others. They show up trying to help Burroughs with the blowback of people finding out who he really is. I think the only reason he brings his wife and children is because it's part of this scheme of, you see, I'm a good citizen. I'm a family man. 
I haven't done anything wrong. So by the winter of 92, his family is with him. By spring of 1793, he's now accused of rape again. So at this time, Burroughs had been in competition with a man named Woolworth for a schoolmaster. And so by May, these accusations and things going on with his life cannot be silenced. By May 30th, there's a petition by the town council to have him removed from the area. And by July, Mrs. Aldridge is accusing him of rape, assault with the intent to ravish. Mrs. Aldridge is repeatedly questioned in numerous meetings, and her story is sticking. So this is why people are sent down from Long Island to go to these places where he's already been a criminal. One of them stops at Dartmouth, where the president of Dartmouth, Wheelock, who is buddies with Reverend Burroughs, Daddy Burroughs, he expelled him. But he refuses to say a word. He will not say anything about, yeah, we expelled him, nothing. He refuses to talk. So he's clearly aiding Burroughs at this point. By October, there's an arrest warrant and he's trying to get people to give security for him. But no one wants to touch this. So he had already been tried in July. He was refused bail. So we've got Daddy Burroughs coming to the rescue. People trying to aid him. But he's in a lot of trouble. So his crime was bad enough that by June 17th of 93, he has to secure his bond with 30 pounds. And then people are sent to get the evidence and some people do end up printing something from Springville, Massachusetts about his long history of crimes. So now he's known as Stephen Burroughs. He's not Stephen Edenton. He tries to do the gang scheme where he tries to turn around and sue, but no one's going to let him do this. He's in a lot of trouble. And he's told by a judge that because his conduct since he's been on Long Island has been very similar to his previous crimes, that he's now bound over to the court. And he admits that it's for a crime of a most enormous and aggravated nature. He's told by the court that they have no doubt that he's going to be convicted for this. So this is when he does his little plot, tries to get help. No one's helping him. In fact, the attorney that he says he hired ended up flipping to the prosecution side. So although he once again tries to claim that he's innocent, I do not think so. This is the same guy who in prison had ranted against a prisoner, Hines, who was allowed special treatment to have his lover, who was married to someone else, come. And Burroughs refers to her as a prostitute. I don't think she's actually a prostitute. I think he just is very hateful. He calls his victims barefaced whores. He calls women he doesn't like prostitutes. And it was at his other trial where he had been accused of attempted murder. Dr. Hines, Dr. Conkley, Someone named Powers said that he believed his life was threatened if he told on Burroughs. Burroughs has a history of violence. He's been accused of intimidating people. He has already attacked guards to escape. He has almost burned down the jail with other prisoners, not caring if they get murdered. He encourages one prisoner to attack another and beat the crap out of him. He may not have a direct trail to a murder, but he is a violent person. Like Joseph Smith, Junior, he refers to people who he doesn't like as wicked, as, you know, liars. He says that the jailer is wicked for arresting him at this point. He says that Mrs. Aldridge, that she's a liar. But again, her story stuck with numerous interviews. She had to do numerous meetings where she was questioned. What's really horrifying about this is he's allowed to represent himself. And that means that he gets to interrogate her, which would be absolutely horrific. So at this point, we've got a long history. We've got him stealing as a kid, pretending to be a doctor, pretending to be a reverend. He's a horse thief. He is a counterfeiter. He is someone who's guilty of assault. He is an escape artist. He's a lot of things. 
But like with the other trial, because it does damage reputations at this point, he gets off with lesser crimes. Like the woman doesn't really want to go into all the details when it actually comes down to it, according to him. So that's not an excuse or vindication of what he's done. It's just the way that perpetrators got away with this kind of stuff back then. Even though he's allowed to cross-examine this witness and his victim, he's still guilty and he is liable to pay for the cost of prosecution, but he doesn't have the money. It's interesting that the sheriff seems to bail him out. By the fall, he's being arrested for debts. His house is sacked. Items are taken because he has debts. This is when the family's supposed to be removed. His wife and children, because there's this order to have them removed and him as well, he goes and hides while they're put in a cart and removed to New London. And they just come back. But it shows that he's a coward because he just hides. The Smiths also had debts and they also had eviction notices from towns in New Hampshire before they went to Palmyra. And while they were in Palmyra, they had debt collectors coming. Joseph Smith Sr., he fled his debts. Alvin fled debts and debt collectors would come calling. Hiram, he had to flee debts. Their life in a lot of ways was similar to Stephen Burroughs. So he finally does get security with the judge holbert who swears it with another person so he's released and during the winter of 93 he actually continues his school so what someone named jay cook there's a letter that burroughs publishes in a later edition of his book refers to burroughs in a letter as mordecai the jew which clings to this persecution theory and that letter was written may 28 1793 and that is a narrative that the Mormon church continues even today. So I'm going to wrap this episode up. The next episode, we are going to finish up Stephen Burroughs' life until he gets his book published. And then I'm going to jump into the 1806-1807 gang crackdown in Vermont that snagged Joseph Smith Sr. when our little JJ was just a little baby.